You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. If you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to John 11. We're going to finish out this chapter, uh, verses 45 through 57, with a sermon titled, One Man Should Die. If you do not have a Bible or you want a copy of the ESV, uh, go ahead and raise your hand. Our ushers would be glad to put one in your hand if you need sermon notes. Uh, Also, they can uh, give those to you. And just a reminder, if you have the Redemption uh, app, a uh, copy of the ESV version of the Bible is in there, as well as sermon notes. So if you're, you're, you're good digitally, uh, that is a great asset as well. With that being said, like uh, we are excited to, to be in John, right? We've been going through John for a while. We've had some breaks last week. Pastor Nate came and gave us a great message uh, that we all needed to hear, and, um, but but I was excited to get back into John, this, this journey of this gospel according to John and, and what that means for us. Um, so just kind of a, a recap of where we are. Like, you know, we've, we started, we're verse by verse going through this book, starting one, and here we are at 11. There's, there's been a structure that John uses in his gospel that we've gotten to watch, right? And it's structured really around some statements of who God, who Jesus says he is as God. And then these miracles, which started with the, the first miracle, which was the, the wedding feast at Cana where he changes water into wine. And then along the way, there's these miracles. And we saw uh, two weeks ago when Seth was preaching the, the final miracle that John focuses on, not that there weren't other miracles going on, but he structures his gospel around these miracles. The final miracle where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so all along the way, what we're looking at is is what does this mean, right? And John was so uh, gracious to give us his purpose for writing his gospel. And so in John 20, verse 31, it says, but these things, this gospel account, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. His whole purpose is to show us that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. He is our Savior. He is our King. And then what does that mean? How do we live in light of that? How do we live believing in his name. And so in the passage today, we're going to see how people respond to these things, right? All along the way, John has been giving us evidence of who Jesus is, especially with these miracles. And, and, and there's a response that, you know, we want to believe and then have life in his name but we're going to see some different responses from people in today's passage. And so I'm going to read through this. Uh, Please read with me, uh, and then we'll dive in. So 11, starting in 45, it says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary 
and had seen what he did, this is Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take, bo- take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country of, to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's word for God's people. So as we look at this, I want to just draw out the main point and how I'm going to structure what we're going to talk about this morning. The main point is that Jesus' life and death divides and unifies. I'm going to say it again. It might seem a little confusing, but Jesus' life and death divides and unifies. Now, as we dig into this passage, we are going to see how this plays out. We're going to see division. We're going to see unification. We're going to see how it's all centered around Christ. And it's interesting because Jesus really talks about this. He even says it in other places in the gospel. He says, he says I'm going to divide. There's going to be a division even among families, even among friends of those who will believe and those who will not. And that's hard. That's a hard truth, right? If, if you have somebody that you care about who does not believe, this is sometimes hard to hear. But as believers, our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is our center point. It is the central truth that all our life revolves around. And at the exact same time, the exact same thing that unifies us as believers is division, causes division among us with the world. And so we want to look at this and see what it means. See see how Jesus' life and death divide and unify. And we're going to look at this as this is kind of the point in John's gospel where we really see this relentless movement to the cross. All right? 
there's been these big chunks of time, and, and now we're, we're shrinking those down, and we're, we're seeing like this laser focus. And, and this is kind of that, that start. And so as Jesus moves towards the cross, it causes division of belief among people. And that's our first point. As, as Jesus moves to the cross, towards the cross, it causes a division of belief among people. And so as we look at really verse 45 and 46, we see this very clearly. So this is, this is talking about those who were there, who are present, this group of people who witnessed Lazarus raised from the dead by Christ. So the same people who saw the same thing, right, have now gone from one group to two. Some or many of the Jews there believed. They saw this and they, they believed. And then we have this other group that ran and told, right? They told the, the Pharisees, the religious elite, the ones who were... Uh, after Jesus, not for good, but for his death. And it's interesting as we think about this, as we like really get this picture of, here's these people that witnessed this guy who was dead, like real dead, like four days dead, raised to life by the command, by the word right, of Jesus. And that, that should blow their mind, right? They see this, and yet there was this split. Some believed, some didn't. And, and people will believe in, differently about Jesus. They'll respond differently. And as we look at this group, we want to pull out some of those differences. We also want to remember that this is a theme that John uses throughout his gospel account, right? This idea that, like, there's a, a miracle and there's believers based on that, right? They believe, and some of those become true believers, and some of them, they, just, they, they believe that, yes, he did this miracle and he's from God, but they might not fully believe that he is God. But then there's others that even not just witness but experience a miracle and there's something in their heart that they just won't believe. And I wonder, like, like when we look at this, how, how does that happen? Because we see these guys who ran off. Now, I don't know about you. Like, if I witnessed a man that I knew, a friend or family member who was dead. I had been mourning for them. And then this man comes and raises him to life. I am going to believe who he is. But it didn't hit these other people. They, they have an unbelieving heart. They run and they tell the Pharisees about him. And, and, and the truth is there's people who won't believe no matter what. Right? For, for an unbelieving heart, there is no miracle, no sign, no wonder that will change that where they will submit to God's authority. 
And I also want to remind us that in the end, it's not the miracle that we believe in. We believe in the person and work of Christ, the miracle maker. So the, the, the miracle is, as John points, it's a sign pointing to him, showing who he is. But we believe because of the relationship, because he gives us a faith to believe this. He is who he says he is. He'll do what he'll say he will he he do what he will say he will do, right? Sorry. Um, but I do not want to take away from the idea that there is a difference between doubt and unbelief, right? And so as your pastor, I want us to think about this because sometimes we get those mixed up. We start thinking, if I have doubts, am I an unbeliever? And I tell you, no. It's, it's, it's all right to have doubts. Sometimes it's good for us to have doubts because then we have to wrestle that out with God. We have to work it out, our, our, you know, work out your, your, your faith with fear and trembling. It's okay to have doubts. You know, and, and as believers, sometimes we have doubts, right? We look at our circumstances, and they're hard, and we doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's promises when we look around and we can't see what he's doing. Maybe we, we doubt our own faith because there's still sin in our life, because there's still sin around us. And we, and we wonder why. And I would just encourage you as your pastor, like, doubt is okay. As long as in that doubt we are struggling toward Jesus. It's good. We struggle toward Jesus. And that's different than unbelief. Unbelief is, is denying or ignoring the God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign king of all things because of rebellion, despite the evidence, despite what he's done. And, and that's what we get to see here. This miraculous exposure of Jesus as God, and they refuse to believe. And I'll tell you, this should encourage us as followers of Christ um, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I share with somebody that I love the transformational, the miraculous work that God's done in my life, and they don't believe. And I start to go, did I do it wrong? Did I say the wrong thing? Was and it's just an encouragement that all we are told to do is witness, and he will do that other work. Some people will not believe. We never stop praying. We never stop sharing. But some people have a heart that is hardened. And, and that's what I want to talk about in our next point, because what we see is, is this display of the heart motive in these people. So... Our second point, as Jesus moves toward the cross, it exposes the motives of people. So in this section, uh, we're, we're introduced, right? They ran to the Pharisees, and, and then they called the council. And another name you might have heard for the council is Sanhedrin. 
right? If, if you've heard of that term, well, this is really just the Greek word for council. But the Sanhedrin is the ruling body over the Jewish people. Or at least that's how it's portrayed. But really, they are appointed and controlled by Rome. The Romans allow them to govern as long as it meets their requirements, as long as things go smoothly. And if they don't, the Romans will come in and crush it. And so we're introduced to this Sanhedrin. And what we see is, is a demonstration of their heart motive. So I want to look at verse 47. As these people have run and told, this is what Jesus did. Their response is, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So immediately, they are acknowledging what he has done. Miraculous signs that point to deity. They say, I acknowledge this. He's done many signs. But then right on the heels of it, it says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I want that to sit for a minute. Everyone will believe in him. And what that does is that exposes their heart. Are they worried that people would believe in Christ for their good and salvation? Or are they worried about losing something? It says they'll believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is the salvation for his people. And their response, they, they kind of want that. They'll believe in him instead of what? Instead of us. And they don't want to lose what they have. The Romans will come and take away our place, our position our authority, and what that means in our life, our authority and control, the things I can hold on to. And I want to come back to this, but just a side note, this council is made up of the aristocracy, the wealthy, the prominent men of Israel they're all living in Jerusalem. And, and so that's the predominance of this council, the 71 men. But there's also this group of very influential religious leaders who are the Pharisees. They're zealous to keep the law. And in all of that, they are blind to the truth. It's laid before them. And their response is that they're blind to it. But these men are are appointed. Think of them as a religious supreme court. They're appointed, not by the people, but by Rome, so that Rome can exercise their authority and control. And what these people have really is an illusion of power, an illusion of authority, an illusion of control. And it's so prominent in their heart. It is their identity. It is 
everything to them, they will do whatever it takes to maintain that. Any control people in here? Any people like to control situations, control responses, control the environment? Like, it's a, it's a thing that's kind of in us when we're not fully submitted. Even as believers, sometimes we start grasping for control, especially when we feel out of control. We want to reach our arms around it and hold on tight because we don't like that feeling. And so we see this, this idea of them feeling that loss of control, this fear that they won't have what they've been enjoying. Do you ever act like that? Maybe uh, you have really surrendered every part of your life to Christ, but you find yourself grasping in one area, like, I, I just need to hold on to this. I don't want to submit that yet. Maybe if you don't believe you're, you're in a place where you're seeing the evidence and you're refusing to let go because you want to control your life. You want to be the final authority. You want to be God for yourself. I encourage you to search your heart and see what he is telling you in this. Like the Sanhedrin, we want to control. We want to decide those things. But it's always an illusion. For the Sanhedrin, it was an illusion because the real power, the earthly power, was in Rome and they would do whatever Rome said. That's what they're afraid of. Rome's going to come in and take this away from me. And for us as believers, it's an illusion of power and control because the one who is in control of all things is our God. And we try to hold on to that illusion, but it's not true control, authority, or power. These guys are only concerned with their position. And then we get introduced to this guy, Caiaphas, right? Caiaphas is the chief priest. He's, he's the head of this council. And he is, I believe it was 18 years that he was. And John points out that this year he was that guy. And it gives us kind of another time marker. And I don't know about you. How would you like to be in this meeting where he's like, you guys don't know anything? A little blunt, a little rude, but he, he calls them out and says, don't you see what the answer is? This guy has to die. If we want to hold on to our control, our power, our authority, we got to get rid of this guy, this Jesus. And he says this, this quote, like, it's better that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. And I love this because he had no good intention in that. But God, but God can use wicked schemes of wicked men to accomplish his great redemption story. He can accomplish this great, merciful, grace-filled work through this man who is trying to grasp his own authority and control. God's going to bring every nation, every tribe, every tongue to himself. 
He's going to create a people for himself. He's going to unify the nations who believe and divide those who don't. So these guys are scheming to kill Jesus to maintain their self-interests. They don't want to submit. They will not believe no matter what evidence you put in front of them. And we also can see this in our lives. We want to keep Jesus out of certain areas. And what's beautiful is, is as we're looking at this relentless march to the cross, we, we know what the cross did, right? We get to look, thankfully, backwards. We get to read this backwards through a lens of the cross, and we get to know that his atoning work cleansed us and made a way for us. And so when we start to feel like we need to be in control, we just repent and come to him and ask him to cleanse us one more time. Tell him we're sorry for trying to be God in his place. We also see that Jesus needed to die for us to be saved. It wasn't that this man stated it, this Caiaphas, but it was that God knew that we needed Jesus to die for us so that we could be saved. There was no other way, and God is going to accomplish his plan. So I ask you to think right now, in light of this, ask yourself, am I scheming to kill Jesus? Maybe not as an unbeliever. Maybe you are as an unbeliever trying to kill Jesus. You don't want that in my life. Am I scheming to kill Jesus or at least keep him out of my business? Am I ignoring him in his creation? Or maybe you have trusted and you feel like you've turned over your whole life to Jesus and then you wonder, why am I still trying to control this thing? Why am I trying to maintain control instead of trusting in the one who controls all things? I would encourage you, think on that. Turn those things over to him. So far in this passage, we have talked about how Jesus divides believers and unbelievers. He's uh, relentlessly moving towards the cross. He reveals our heart motives. Now we're going to... transition into this idea of unification. So we've seen the division, right? And now we're going to look at unification. And our third point is as Jesus moves toward the cross, it creates unity in his people. Now this next section, like, you can read through it and just not see how awesome it is. Like, I'm blown away when I read it. And, And John, thankfully, just has a little commentary right in there in his account. And we don't have to wonder about this, but he says, look, this guy Caiaphas, he was really prophesying, not not just that Jesus would die for the nation in his mind, but that Jesus would die to make one of all his children from the beginning of time to the end of time, all his children, all those he has called, He would die to unify us, to make us one, to gather as one his children scattered abroad. This is beautiful. Like we, I don't think we really 
think about that enough. Like we have this unity in Christ. We're unified to Jesus. We get to have that communion vertically. But we're also unified in Christ to all the believers. Every believer sitting in this room, every believer throughout the world, we have unity because of Christ. And I'll tell you, maybe you've experienced this, like it's awesome when you're somewhere way out of your context and like you make that connection, like you know, hey, I got a live one, this one is a believer. And immediately you have the most important thing in your life unifying you. You have a connection. You can sit and just be amazed at Jesus with this person. It's so good. And it's because of this, because Jesus knew that he was going to unify his people. He was going to gather them into one. And so while the Sanhedrin is worrying about their little kingdom, their, their nation, their grasping for control, Jesus has a mission to make one, to make us one with him. And so his death on the cross that we're marching to, that we're going to see in the weeks coming, this death is going to be the payment to be made so that we could be justified, that we could be made worthy, that we could be cleansed so that we could be not just in his presence but with each other, centered on him. So we've seen Jesus divide. We've seen this unity, but we also want to look at how he did this, right? And John gives us a little glimpse. So our fourth point, our final point is, as Jesus moves toward the cross, it fulfills the Passover for his people. So in verse 55, it says this little phrase, and we've actually seen this a few times. We'll talk about it. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so this isn't just a time marker, although it is used as a time marker. Now we can kind of see this an annual festival. This is an annual feast. Uh, So we know that this actually is the third time that John points this out. So we have this idea of the the ministry timeline of Jesus. But there's also some other things as we look at what that means, what the Passover itself means, and how this progression is. So in John 2 was the, the first time that John wrote this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And in John 2, what we see is Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. And then when he gets there, he cleanses the temple. They're corrupting the place that is supposed to be a worshipful place for the presence of God. And he cleanses it. He gets rid of the animals. He gets rid of the money changers, throws over their tables. He cleanses the temple on his first Passover And this is just looking forward to what he does to his temple even now, right? 
they had the temple then, but as Jesus, through his death and resurrection, built a new temple, he built it in his people, and he cleanses his temple so that it is made right to worship him. And that's what we saw in John 2. Now, in John 6 is the second mention of the Passover. And in this Passover, Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem. So he doesn't go to that temple. But he goes into Galilee on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And what does he do? He, he teaches to a massive crowd, right? This is the feeding of the 5,000. And if we remember, like that number was 5,000 men plus women and children. This is a huge crowd, and he feeds them with two fish and five loaves. And what he's doing is he's miraculously providing for this time period of the Passover. He is, he is feeding his people, and this should remind us, as it would have reminded them, of, of God's provision as he led them out of Egypt, as he sustained them in the wilderness, his continual provision, his miraculous provision. And we got to think through, like, what did that look like? So when he led them out, and this is kind of what we're getting to in this allusion to the Passover, as he was getting ready to lead them out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, what did he have them do? Kill the spotless lamb. Paint his blood on the wood around your doorframe. And then, after death passed over them, they were given much provision by the Egyptians. Like they gave them all their treasure and said, just go. And so what we see in this allusion to the Passover is this is where we know that Jesus now is going to be that Passover lamb. He is going to be the one who is slain. He's the sinless one, the one without blemish, the one to be sacrificed. His blood will drip on that cross to fulfill the Passover. That death for his people, the ones he is unified, would pass over them. Not physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death. And he is that fulfillment of the Passover. And it's interesting because we have these people who come to the Passover. They're, they're there to ritually cleanse themselves, right? Before this Passover, Jesus already cleansed his people, his temple. But they're there and they're wondering. They're having doubts. Will he show up? You don't think he, he'll stay away, do you? And we have this beautiful thing that if we look back, where was Jesus? He was with his disciples. They went to Ephraim, right? He's amongst his people. And so those people know him. They believe they're following him. And then you have the ones who are in Jerusalem, and this is kind of the bigger, the masses, and they, they're wondering, they're doubting. Maybe they, they believe, but now they're unsure because they're not in his presence. And then you have the just hard-hearted, self-interest, self-motivated 
the Pharisees, the unbelievers. And so as we look at Jesus as the fulfillment of this Passover, we get to look at these people and their response to him. There are some who will refuse all the way through, but there are some that are close to their master. They're right with him. And that's what I think we need to do as believers. We need to cling closely to our master. It's too easy to get distracted and wander. And when we aren't clinging close to him, we start to doubt. We start to grasp for control of things because we are not secured. We don't want to do that. We want to cling close. We also want to be aware of the growing significance of what unbelievers in this world want to do. We look out in society, we see a society that is hostile. They want Jesus dead. And they will scheme to have it that way in their world. And as a believer, Christ in you, you become the enemy from that, for them. And we just need to be aware that there are some hearts out there that will not change. But we should be encouraged just as Christ was relentlessly going to the cross, we should be relentlessly, even in the face of danger, coming to witness what he has done for us. And this was all made possible through the cross. And so I want to take a few minutes here to kind of finish up, but we're, we're going to get ready to actually celebrate that work, the fulfillment of the Passover, that work on the cross that set us free in, in communion um, but before that, I just want to close. I want to have us thinking about this text. I want us to think about, like, have we believed, and what does that look like as we follow, right? That was John's purpose. What does it look like to have life in his name? How Jesus causes division to people who will see the exact same thing. Like these who would know and acknowledge, yes, Jesus has done many signs, but I don't want to lose my position. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for those who love us? If you are in that place where you know, like it's uncomfortable, you, you recognize that Jesus is salvation. He is the miracle worker, and you're still holding on to that illusion of control, I'd tell you, let go of it. Come to him, cling tightly, repent and believe. If you are a believer and you've still been holding on to something, you need to turn that over. You, you have no control. He has all control. And as you cling to those things, you are telling him, I don't trust you with this. I can trust you with the rest of it, but I don't trust you with this. And I'll tell you, he is trustworthy, so let those things go. And man, it's a relief when you kind of just give him the control, right? But in all this, it is made possible through his relentless march to the cross that paid the price, that we could be saved in the resurrection that gave us new life. And so we get to celebrate that. As one man should die, he divided, but he unifies. Will you pray with me?
Father in heaven, we love you. We are so, so thankful. Thankful that we have your word, that it reveals who you are to us, that it has shown us that you are who you said you are. And you'll do what you'll say you do. Lord, we, we thank you that we are unified this morning as we sit with brothers and sisters. We, we are unified in you and to each other through you. Lord, as we even saying earlier, we thank you, Jesus, for the cross. We recognize how you have done all good things. Lord, we, we lay down those areas that we're still holding on to, that we want, we want control and we're not trusting you in. We, we ask you to take those from us. In all this, we give you glory. We give you honor. We give you praise. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.